Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the Asutama Sutta, the, the fifth class of our seven-class structured study on right view and understanding five clinging aggregates. Um, the teaching that David gave, the David David gave Saturday, was an outstanding teaching on the Kakaya Nagata Sutta, um, and how important it is to recognize and abandon polarizing views and clinging to anything that would establish me, or for that matter, you in a permanent state in the world. In other words, to get into definition, such as I'm not this, I'm that, or I'm this in opposition to that, but always a polarizing view or an insular view that only continues our own ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So everything the Buddha taught was taught to that end and ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And um, I don't remember the exact line in the uh, Mahashinata Sutta that, uh, and it's similar to what David said, that we understand that emptiness emptiness doesn't exist and non-emptiness doesn't exist. Those are another um, views that we can get stuck in on our mind. Again, it has to be this, it has to be that, it has to be salvation, or it's nothing but sin. You know, that, that's a kind of a modern moralistic view, where the Buddha understood that everything that occurs in relation to our own suffering, our individual suffering, is caused by the way that we think. And so in either a very general and broad way or a very specific way, such as this sutta, the Buddha is pointing us towards where the issue resides. And it's always between our ears. It's always in the way we think about ourselves in relation to the world. This is um, another sutta that relates directly to dependent origination. And in its application, it's a direct teaching on what to do about our own ignorance how to recognize it and in a step-by-step -step and methodical way within Dhamma practice, within the framework of the Eightfold Path, how to recognize and abandon our own ignorance. I only wear this because I like to feel 5-7 again. The Asutava Sutta. The Buddha was at Savati in Jita's Grove and not up in Dika's monastery. There he addressed the assembled monks. Monks, an, un, an uninstructed, ordinary person, micro-disenchanted with their body, composed of the four great elements, earth, wind, fire, and water, they might not grow dispassionate toward their body and gain release from clinging to it. How does this occur? Due to clinging and decline, the impermanence of their body, composed of the four great elements, becomes apparent. In this way, the uninstructed, ordinary person, micro-disenchanted with their body, and gain release from clinging to physical form. It simply means that it's very easy for us to look at ourselves and look at our form and realize, at least at a very um, mundane, not mundane, not very penetrative level, our own impermanence, that everything is impermanent. And so it's easier to let go of this body needs to be permanent when we can look at and understand the impermanence of the body much easier than it is to look at the impermanence of each, each and every thought. And that's what is addressed in the sutta. The Buddha then says, but what is often called mind, intellect, or consciousness, the uninstructed ordinary person is unable to develop disenchantment, disenchantment or develop dispassion towards thinking, thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, and gain release from it. There's a few important words here. The Buddha is saying the uninstructed person. He's not saying that every human being is doomed to think this way. It's just those that are uninstructed about what? About the Dhamma. And it's another reason why we keep our focus very clear on the Dhamma, so that we can instruct ourselves. And then we don't become further ignorant ordinary persons. We become well-instructed still ordinary persons. The Buddha asks a rhetorical question. So how does this occur? Once ignorance arises the mind in the mind, intellect, or consciousness, that is relished. It's, re, it's revered, grasped after, and clung to by the uninstructed ordinary person. So he's not placing blame for the arisings of ignorance. He's simply saying it occurs. And how did he come to this great conclusion, which is one of the most profound thoughts any human being ever had? 
It's by observing what was going on around him and then looking at, Nagara Sutta is a good example of that, looking at his relationship to himself in relation to the world within his mind. And then Nagara Sutta tells us very clearly and shows very clearly this, the, the prison of two ideas that we get stuck in, a mind rooted in ignorance now, now compelled to cling to those ignorant views, even though the form knows it's not true. The form knows impermanence. We just learned that. But the mind refuses to let go of this permanent. I'm permanent. My ideas are permanent. My views about me in the world are permanent. They're etched in stone, and I have to depend on There is dukkha. They see this mind rooted in ignorance as this is me, this is myself, this is what I am. From this self-referential view, it is impossible to grow disenchanted or dispassionate toward the mind or to gain release from clinging to it. It is impossible to do this once we are thinking in this way. This is me. This is mine. This is what I am. And that could be the most altruistic thought that you ever had. But if it's an opposition to the truth, even the truth of impermanence, you've lost your mind and you're prone to creating stress and suffering, disappointment and distraction throughout your life. See this, say that again. They see this mind, a mind ignorant of four noble truths, rooted in ignorance as this is me, this is myself, this is not what I am. That's what we're telling ourselves out of ignorance. The Buddha then says from that self-referential view, it is impossible to grow disenchanted or dispassionate towards the mind or to gain release from clinging to it. But in a full path integrated into life is the path to recognizing and ending ignorance of Four Noble Truths. The Buddha continues, it will be more skillful for the uninstructed ordinary person to cling to their body more so than the mind as the self. Why is this? Because the body composed of the four elements can more easily be seen as impermanent and prone to decay. We can start getting an understanding of impermanence by simply looking at sickness, aging, and death within each and every one of us. But guess what? Nobody wants to face that. Nobody ever wants to face that as a consequence of having a human life. Simply because I'm here on this planet, I am prone to sickness, I'm prone to aging, I'm prone to death. I'm prone to grasp after what I want, and I'm prone to be averse to those things that I don't want. And the Buddha would always conclude that statement by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. Self-identifying with this form and the mind that is in this form as me, this is my, this is what I am, is prone to stress and suffering. That's the thing that we need to recognize in advance and stop taking anything personal because nothing is, as is seen through the Dharma. Um, let me go back a little bit. Why is this? Because the mind composed of the four elements can more easily be seen as impermanent and prone to decay. What is identified as mind or intellect or consciousness is seen as, as one thing that continues to attach to another thing. And that's what we're doing with our thoughts. It's one self-referential thought attached to the previous one projecting our minds into the future. And so we can no longer be present. That's why jhana meditation is the only meditation Buddha ever taught, and it's the one that works within the framework of the Dhamma. Because when we're mindful of a breath, at least for that breath, we've reunited that mind in its body. And now we can start looking at and understanding impermanence. Where first? Through the body and then through the, our thoughts. Excuse me. As jhana meditation increases our concentration, it's ever more easily seen that I have been attaching one, attaching one thought to the previous thought, continuing into the future. And that is a description of losing your mind, isn't it? Losing your mind to the previous thought. And that previous thought is always rooted in, this is me, this is mine, this is what I am. Until we find something that can interrupt that ignorance, right? This is what the Buddha is teaching on concentration. How do I uninterrupt just what he's describing here? One thought following another thought following another thought. It's by taking a breath and then beginning to frame what I'm thinking rooted in the four foundations of mindfulness and the ever-developing or burgeoning right view. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. The Buddha then says, I love this too, just as a monkey swinging through the forest grabs one branch after another or one drink after another, one drug after another, one relationship after another, one bowl of ice cream after another, one TV show after another, one Twitter after another, on and on and on. Just as a monkey swinging through the forest grabs one branch after another 
In the same way, what is seen as mind, intellect, or consciousness constantly grasp after one thing or another. Unless a mind can be trained to not do so, it's the common human condition that compels that human being to be the monkey going from one branch to another. The Buddha then says the well-instructed disciple of the Dhamma attends mindfully, <clears throat> and another important distinction here, attends mindfully and appropriately to dependent origination. So this is um, a slightly different take in the beginning on dependent origination, but he starts with when this is, that is. But what's he describing? There's a, I won't mention the name. Some of you might not even make the connection, but there's a, a famous Buddhist teacher, world famous, who recently passed, who made his entire meal on teaching dependent origination in this way. When this is present, that is present. When this is not present, but he would use concepts like when... Um, when altruism is present, poverty is it. See, he was taking a social stand, but it has nothing to do with what the Buddha was saying. And there are other um, consequences, including that diatribe. <clears throat> the Buddha says, attend appropriately to dependent origination. When this is, that is. What's he talking about? Is he talking about poverty or all the, I don't want to get a whole list of things that people think are so important today that aren't. What's he talking about? Is he talking about social ills, taking up causes? Or is he thinking about take or telling us to take up the one cause that is most important to bring peace in, in, my, in my mind and calm? When this is, that is. When ignorance is present, suffering is present. When this is, that is. That's all we're talking about. When this is, that is. And then he says, from the arising of this comes the arising of that. From the arising of ignorance comes the, comes the arising of stress and suffering. That is dependent origination. And then he says, when this isn't, that isn't. What is he talking about? When there's no longer any ignorance here, there's no longer contributory stress on my part. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. Again, what are we talking about here in the Dhamma? He's not talking about self-annihilation. He's talking about an, an, an annihilating ignorance. From the cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of dukkha. David made reference to the Salata Sutta on Saturday, and you had a bit of a discussion on that. This is, again, what we're talking about. I no longer am stabbing myself or insisting that I get hit by, get hit by the second arrow. When this isn't, that isn't. When I stop taking things personal, guess what? Does anybody have an answer to what this is, that isn't? When I stop taking things personal, what is it? Laura? Excuse me for putting you on the spot. So as far as, I was just thinking about dependent origination there, but, uh, so can you repeat your question? Again? Sure. When this isn't, that isn't. What does it mean in relation to the Dhamma? Well, I guess I was just thinking of that previous sutta that we talked about, not the one on Saturday, but when ill will is present. Yeah. Mindful that ill will is present, or you can correct me on this, because it might be the wrong connection, or when... You know, calm is present, be mindful that calm is present, or when this is, when that is. But I'm trying to make the connection to what you're saying, you know, to dependent origination. It's a little big the way I, I cast it. Yeah. But it is that. It's to notice when notice more when my mind is disturbed. Right. It's absurd. it's a it's disturbed. I say absurd. Yeah. So when my mind is disturbed, I should look at it. Yes, my mind is disturbed, but now I know what to do. I don't blame anybody. I don't I don't blame Ron for looking at me that way, the way he does. Mm. When this isn't, that isn't. Right. When this is no longer ignorant, I'm no longer acting in an ignorant way. Can, can I can I just interject there? Yeah, please, Philip. Philip. I, I, I think that that translation as we go through the dominoes from the you know the dependent arising or as we get to a from ignorance becomes another to becoming. You know, we get another moment born in ignorance of everything, and there's that cycle. The dom I call them the dominoes, and then I get to another moment of ignorance, and I go on and I go on, and I become again, and I become again, and then I suffer again. Huh. That's my interpretation yeah, what, of it. The what you reference though is the clinging one thought to the next thought, and unless something comes to interrupt that thinking, mm -hmm. and that's what we're referring to here. From the cessation of that type of thinking comes the cessation of the results of that thinking. You had another. Question or comment, Laura? I was just trying to recall. I believe Jen taught it a while ago that 
sutta that I was that's connected to this one that I was thinking of. Be mindful when this is present. Just be mindful that it's there. Yeah. Be mindful that it's not there. Yeah, and the great revelation is just that. Be be mindful when the mind, mind is calm. There it is, you know. Again, and now you're seeing how these all tie together too. Mm -hmm. So we can recognize in ourselves when we, the way that I put it, not to be too exaggerative, word, is I've lost my mind. Mm -hmm. But I've lost my mind the way that I want to be in control of my mind. I have to admit it to myself, not in a blaming way. That yes, I've, I've attached myself to something in the world or some idea in the world. I've lost my mind. Why? Because there's nothing personal. Uncle Sid teaches us each and every class. There's nothing personal. When this is present, when the, the when I have a dispassionate view of the world, my mind is calm. There's no passion in it. And that's a good thing. Most people, would, when they first say, well, you got to be passionate about something. No, except be passionate about the Dhamma. There's a word for that. It's called sukha. It's it's flourishing. It's the it's the um, the opposition to dukkha, if you will, but rooted in the dhamma. I've always seen that those four statements as kind of a shorthand for the whole of origination, but it is in in the sense that um, from the rising of this comes the rising of that, from the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. Uh, I see that as like for each step, this this counts. But the odd thing for me is when he says, when this is, that is. So if you put that to dependent origination, um, it almost says that, well, all these things exist together as well. They exist simultaneously as well. It's not that one, it is just that one gives rise to the other. Yes, and at one, in the beginning of Dhamma practice, we are the uninstructed. Mm -hmm. And so that, when this is, that is, relates directly to that quality of mind. Mm -hmm. But Ram's pointing out something that's so important. It is within this quality of mind, a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truth, that we find ourselves. In this sutta, it says, okay, recognize that you're there. It, there's no, there's no, how did it happen to me? Why did this happen? Who, who did this to me? Or how, how foolish or weak or anything else that I am? It's just that within the same mind that is prone and compelled towards ignorance. Once the Dharma is introduced, well introduced, well integrated and well practiced, that same mind becomes awakened. It becomes from the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. So it wouldn't be possible for me to go from a deluded state to awakened state if I didn't already have it within me. Right. But what is it within me? It's not it's not a um, it's not an idea that I'm talking about, is it? It's not my idea of what humanity should be about. It's humanity. And the only way I can understand my own humanity is to be present for it in this moment, when this is, that is. And so when I talk about making each moment of your life meaningful simply by being mindfully present, that's what I'm talking about. Because then each and every moment is meaningful because this is and that isn't. I'm here for it. I'm living in it. And no matter what it is. So let me, and some of the, some of the questions and comments are leading to what's still in the sutta. So the Buddha says, in other words, from ignorance as a requisite condition comes fabrication, right? Fabric, that's the beginning of dependent origination. From those fabrications, from a fabricated view or a corrupted view of myself in relation to the world, from fabrications as a requisite condition, right? That has had to already occur. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes what? The problem, consciousness. But this is not consciousness with a big C. It's not a grand cosmic consciousness. There's no such thing in the Dhamma. It's simply consciousness is ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. From that type of thinking, from that consciousness as a requisite condition, comes name and form. The Pali is Nama Rupa. It simply means just this. It means I've given a name to this form, which also means now I'm taking it personal because now this is the John that has to be defended. This is a John that needs to be something else in the world because what it is is not quite enough. Instead of an original understanding or coming to that understanding at some point in my life, that when this is, that is. When I'm, when I'm no longer taking this moment personally, 
calm prevails. And also within that calm mind is a profound understanding of what it means to be me in this moment. That's the only way my mind could be calm, isn't it? That I don't need anything else and I can't be anything else except this. Popeye was right. I am what I am. And the Buddha is right here. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes consciousness from that type of thinking. As a requisite, as a required condition, condition comes taking things personal, name and form. From name and form as a requisite condition. Now you can see the progression from one thought to the next thought. And in between those thoughts, stress and suffering arises. From name and form as a requisite condition, from taking things personal as a requisite condition, comes the sixth sense base, right? So the, the sixth sense base is the four elements. The sixth part of that, the space property, we talk about that, and consciousness. And all of that is the sixth sense base that every human being has. But when it starts clinging together, we use different components of that base. Um, within the form element is the taste element. And I start forming opinions about what I like or strong thoughts about something um, influenced by what I might have read or what's out in the world today. This all is coming through my six senses, my sixth sense pace, but what is it, which is the interpretive, which is the feeling part of the interpretive human mechanism. So my mind is already caught in ignorance of four noble truths. And now that quality of mind is using its human form to come in contact with the world. But now I'm interpreting that contact through a mind rooted in ignorance. Is everybody following me? I'm coming in contact with the world with a mind that is rooted in a wrong view, lacking understanding of what's actually occurring. And so the Buddhist Dhamma takes us away from even needing what's occurring in this moment to be a priority to simply being present for what's arising. Laura, please. Could you just distinguish between the sixth sense base and, um, you know, filtering and talking about, you know, using that or our ego is filtering you know, no. things that are happening, but just distinguish between that and then also just being a reference point to what's occurring. You know, yeah. how do we distinct, what's the process that occurs from self-referential, like views, I know it's through genre, but through just being a reference point. That's what I was trying to think when I was getting distracted on the question today, and it helped just being a reference point to see what's occurring. Yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're really penetrating to what I just read also. Uh -huh. So the, the sixth sense base is a, is a, can be an uninstructed ordinary human being. We have our senses, we have, you know, we make this up to sixth sense base or the sixth, uh, sometimes called the sixth media base or something like that. But it's simply the, again, just to use some number uh, list, it's simply the five clinging aggregates mm -hmm. coming in contact with the world. And so this is the, the, um, the beginning of the informative or uh, interpretive vehicle that I can either, that, that interpretive vehicle is part, <clears throat> part of the sixth sense base is a sixth sense of consciousness. Excuse me. But we learned in this sutta, and we learned in the Dhamma, that what we're referring to is ongoing thinking rooted in the ignorance of four noble truths. If it is that consciousness that is part of the sixth sense base that is coming in contact with ordinary worldly events, or even my own idea of myself, um, and I, I am compelled to interpret it um, wrongly. I won't, I won't be resting in right view, and so I will take it personally. And so the sixth sense base, you can say, is, is either personal or impersonal. Mm -hmm. It can be a vehicle for personalizations or a vehicle for understanding. So it's not a good thing and it's not a bad thing. It's simply mm -hmm. describing an aspect of humanity, the sixth sense base. So it is that sixth sense base that an awakened human being resting in calm is now the reference point. And we're still using all of those senses, aren't we? All the time. All the time. But now, because our mind is rooted in understanding, what the Buddha describes as awakening, understanding ignorance at a mo at its, or understanding dukkha at its most profound and penetrative level, now that interpretive vehicle is simply calm because it's seeing what's occurring. And so now you can see it as just a reference point, right? Yeah. Great question. Thank you.
Um, just to read that again quickly to put it back in, a conscious, in, in context, from consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. From name and form as a requisite condition now comes a sixth sense base. So you see this process from the sixth sense base as a requisite condition comes contact. From contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. How do we, how do most people describe, how do we ask people how they're doing? We always ask, they want to know how they're feeling. And it's, it's driven into us that our entire existence is rooted in how we're feeling today. How are you feeling today? I had a bad day or a good day. When it really is kind of a silly question. I ask it all the time, too, of you, but in this context. Comes feeling. So the way that I'm experiencing my human life through feeling and how I think about that feeling can either be rooted in ignorance or rooted in understanding. And here is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? And it takes us all the way back to what the Buddha taught us in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness or how to meditate. Recognize. Take a breath in your body. As you've done that, recognize that feelings are arising and possibly distracting. Thoughts are arising and possibly distracting. What happens when I notice that I'm doing that in jhana? I take another breath. I'm gaining control of my mind, and I'm gaining control of the sixth sense base, aren't I? Because now, when I'm off my cushion, but my mind now well, well concentrated and resting in right view, what comes into my, what I come in contact with is now rooted in understanding, and no distraction or disturbance arises, no matter what it is, no matter what's occurring in the world. It's no longer an automatic process. Yeah, because we've gained control of our mind. Will automatically generate yeah. Yes, and that what Rama is also explaining is what we refer to often as conditioned mind. So if, if throughout my lifetime I've taken a position against something, and some if I I think I was talking to Laura or somebody mm -hmm. else talking about all my life I've been told that that uh, white horses are the worst. I mean I, I'm not getting into the racial uh, polka dot horses, zebras. <laughs> that zebras are, are bad are bad equines. And so now every time I see a, a zebra, I'm going to go. It's silly. But I'm going to get upset and insist that that zebra be out of my life this moment. We can't have zebras. I can't have it. And we do that with, with silly things all the time. We do it with zebras because it's all zebras. There's, there's nothing that rooted in reality that we should take personal. It doesn't mean that we might see a different way of living, a more gentle way of living. But that's where the Dhamma leads us to anyway. So how is that, zebras? From zebras come in contact with the sixth sense. From the sixth sense base as a requisite condition comes contact. From that contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. From that feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. I just kind of described it with that silly metaphor, right? There's nothing wrong with zebras, but since I decided it, now I crave. And another word for that type of craving is aversion, isn't it? From feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. And it's never rooted in anything that's worthwhile losing our minds over. From that craving as a requisite condition, now comes clinging and maintaining. And so it's important to understand that this process happens so quickly, we can't see it happen. It happens, you could stay, for all intents and purposes, you could say that this process that we're now talking about, that was discovered 2,600 years ago, happens outside of time. Or we can say that it takes a, a very deep level of concentration to recognize it when it's happening. We can recognize right after it's happening rather quickly. But to get into the process of knowing it's coming up, being able to interrupt it and stop it is Dhamma practice. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. We all know when we're doing it now because we have a reference point. From that clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. Becoming what? There's no qualification here or any place else where the Buddha mentions becoming, but he does teach in other suttas what becoming, what he's referencing. And so each moment of our human life holds the potential to become further ignorant or to become awakened. Where are we going to incline our minds? If we're in, within the framework of the Dhamma, developing right view of five clinging aggregates, now we're inclining our minds towards awakening and towards further becoming further ignorant. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. This is the entire teaching on birth as the Buddha taught. And that's nothing to do with physical birth, does it? In the context as that the Buddha taught it, always like this, he's talking about being mindful of what you're giving birth to in this moment. And what is the vehicle that we use to give birth to in this moment? Personal. My mind. It's my mind. 
And it's the quality of my mind that is determining the quality of my human life. And I could either say, I don't want this. I want more of that. I don't like you. I love that. I wish I was taller. I wish I was shorter. I wish my neck didn't hurt. Wish this, wish that, wish this. Or I can just say, this is my moment in my life. And there's nothing personal. Because the Buddha taught me everything I need to know in describing dukkha. Birth is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Not getting what is desired is suffering. In short, getting what is a desire to suffering. In short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. So right view is understanding that these five clinging aggregates do not describe me. They're simply a component of my life. And it is only by through ignorance that I create something that we can call the vehicle of five clinging aggregates. What I ride throughout my life to continue to stress and suffering. Then the Buddha says, from birth as the requisite condition, now comes sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, what I just described. But what is he saying here? From birth as a requisite condition comes sickness. Of course, from birth, we're, gonna, we're all going to get sick. That's a part component of being alive, isn't it? There's going to be regret. There's going to be pain. There's going to be distress. There's going to be despair. Then he says, such is the origination of the entire mass of confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. So what is he saying here? Is he saying we're doomed to ignorance? Look at the context he's saying it in. It's only a mind that's rooted in ignorance that reacts in a self-referential way to sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Does everybody understand that? This is what we're dealing with, with the Dhamma. It's our own personalization of having a human life. Is there any choice that we have, if we're having a human life, to at times be sick or to at times age? To face our own demise, to be sorrowful about things, to regret things, to wish things weren't different, to have pain mental or physical, sometimes sometime extreme, to be distressed over this or that, to get so distressed that we are now despondent about things. We seem like there's no hope for anybody. Has anybody ever felt like that? Has anybody ever thought like that? I would bet you all have. That's when you're taking life personally. And the Buddha's teaching us that we don't have to do that because when we understand that as a consequence of having a human life, all of these things are going to be part of my life. But through understanding it, I don't have to take any of it personally. I don't have to blame myself for having a birth, for having this life, for being in some class or another. Think about what's going on in the world today. I've had a birth. This is where I landed. I'm 67 years old. I wish I was 50. Well, I really don't anymore. I used to. I mean, it started changing when I was, I think when I was into my 30s, I started thinking about what the hell is going to happen when I turned 40. I turned 40 and nothing happened. I've been sick at times. I missed last class because I was sick. There's a lot of things that I could regret. I told David, every, about once a week, I watch the news. I spend one hour regretting everything I'm listening to. I don't know why I do it at all. Maybe I'll stop. And sometimes it puts me in distress and despair, but I take a breath and I get out of it. And I realize that what's occurring in the world has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with ignorance. The Buddha doesn't leave us there. He says, now from the complete cessation of ignorance of four noble truths comes the cessation of fabrication, taking us right back to the beginning of dependent origination. From ignorance as a requisite condition comes fabrication. From understanding four noble truths comes the end of fabrication or the cessation of fabrication or the cessation of even the consideration of when this isn't, that isn't. Because then there just is what's occurring. It sounds like that great, you know, the Zen concept is I'm just sitting in isness and nothingness and emptiness, but we know that's not what we're talking about. We know that we're doing just what Laura referenced before. Now I am a reference point to what's occurring. And it is, it is a vital and dynamic and thoroughly mindful reference point to what's occurring. Life doesn't have to be any magical than just this moment to make it magical because we're simply present, present for it. He takes us through the process from the cessation of fabrications. Excuse me.
this is we're going into reverse order how we how we actually go through the process of undoing our own ignorance from the cessation of fabrication comes the cessation of consciousness and make no we're not talking about we lose the ability to think but we end the ability to be struck to clinging one thought to another thought from the cessation of fabrications comes the cessation of stringing one thought after another from the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of i'm sorry excuse me everybody turn their heads i got a burp <laughs> excuse me i really did i'm just human after all just a bodily function from the cessation of fabrications comes the cessation of consciousness from the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form from the cessation from the ending or abandoning that type of ignorant thinking one thought clinging to another thought clinging to another thought when i could end that name and form come to cessation nama rupa self-referential views come to an end how did it happen it wasn't magic it wasn't a miracle it wasn't a thousand and one prostration prostrations it was ending ignorance of four noble truths from the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form from the cessation of name and form taking things personally comes the cessation of the sixth sense base we don't become mutant lumps you know that's what conda means a stump of a tree from the cessation of say, taking things personal comes the cessation of using the sixth sense pace based as that interpretive vehicle and now i'm thinking feeling and acting as awakened human being from the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact which means now i can be out in the world without getting entangled in the world and if you're not quite ready it just means you need a little bit more dhamma practice to take that off your cushion and into the world and so this is why you hear me say it at every class almost every class our dhamma practice begins with jhana two meditation sessions twice a day coming to class studying the sutras and if you're doing that as often and as much as you can you will awaken but if you're finding reasons to not do that it it, it isn't a, a crazy bald guy in french town french town is shaking his finger at you because it really is of no consequence to me except that i care about you but it should be to yourself you can ask yourself, am I doing everything that I can to implement what I'm learning in this seven, seven class structured study? From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense base. From the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. Again, it doesn't mean that I've lost the ability to feel. In fact, we feel, I feel deeper about everything that I've ever felt before. But I'm no longer using my feelings as justification for my thinking. See, that person made me feel bad. So it's right to hate. Or I feel bad because I didn't get that thing. Well, I just got to work harder to get to, for acquisitions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm never good enough. Or I can stop Nama Rupa. I can stop self-referential self views. I can stop taking things personally through the Dhamma, as the Buddha is describing here. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and maintaining views rooted in ignorance. From the cessation of clinging and maintaining comes the cessation of becoming what? Becoming further ignorant. We do it to ourselves. We do it through Dharma practice. From the cessation of becoming further ignorant comes the cessation of birth. Let me just say it a little bit differently. From the cessation of becoming further ignorant comes the cessation of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. So we can always look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what am I giving birth to in this moment? And if it's inclined towards calm, give yourself a nice smile. And if it's not, realize you need a little bit more Dhamma practice and a little bit more study. And you will. Because I think everybody that's listening to this tonight will agree that anybody can do this. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. So when I awaken, it means that I no longer age, will age. I no longer will get sick. I know it doesn't mean anything like that. It means that I'm going to continue to age. I'm going to continue to have sicknesses. I'm going to continue to have to face my own demise sometimes. I'm going to be many, many times where I might have regretted something, but now I'm in control of my mind. And then I just see these things as a natural consequence of having a human life. And I'm really glad I got to have this human life. I really am. 
I don't know any different, but I'm really glad I'm having this one. Does everybody understand that? If I wasn't having this human life, I wouldn't know that I'm not having a human life. But I sure am glad that I know I'm having a human life because that's what I'm having. Right? I'm not having a human life that's rooted in an ideology. I'm having a human life that's rooted in understanding. Popeye was right. I am what I am. And I can't be anything else than I am right now. And I, again, please listen to me and I tell you, this moment is the most meaningful. Sometimes I come in tears when I think about it. This is the most meaningful moment I've ever had in my life. And that's the truth. <laughs> I had to bring in Lily Tomlin at least once. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, and despair. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of this entire mass of confusion, deluded suffering. The confusion, deluded thinking and suffering. From the cessation of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance comes the cessation of the entire mass of suffering. The Buddha continues, understanding this clearly, and in my parentheses, and within the proper context, the well-instructed disciple, a disciple is not something religious, it just means somebody who's taken up the discipline to follow through. Understanding this clearly, and within the proper context, the well-instructed disciple of the Dhamma grows disenchanted with form, disenchanted with feelings, disenchanted with perception, dis disenchanted with fabrications, and disenchanted with consciousness. We become disenchanted with the five clinging aggregates. We don't dispose of them or annihilate them or do anything else with them. We just become disenchanted with using them as a reference point for my life. Disenchanted, that wise disciple becomes dispassionate. That's how we do it. By becoming disenchanted to our own, to our own continued nama rupa, our own continued eye making. Now through dispassion, they are fully released from the five clinging aggregates. With complete release, they know they are fully released. So how do you know when you get there? David? When you when you fully released? You know it. You know from the quality of your mind. Your mind is calm. They know that giving birth to, uh, to additional views rooted in ignorance has ended. That is liberation, my friends. When you know that you're, there's nothing left within you to give rise to another moment rooted in ignorance, you are liberated. And please think about that for a moment. Would you think that's, that's a true statement? Does anybody think it's not a true statement? That's true liberation? Yeah. The Buddha continues. They know a life well integrated within the Eightfold Path has been fulfilled and has, and that in that the task is done. Let me read it again. They know that a life well integrated with the Eightfold Path has been, has been fulfilled and that the task is done. So this is the great task of our life, isn't it? Waking up, gaining full human maturity. They know that clinging to the world has ended. I'm going to read these two again. Um, in many of the translations, when there's reference to integration with the Eightfold Path, the words that are almost always, the English words are almost always the holy life. But I've changed that throughout my restoration because there's nothing holy meaning religious, but we are wholly integrated in the Eightfold Path. They know that a life well integrated within the Eightfold Path has been fulfilled and that the task is done. They know that clinging to the world has ended. It's the end of this sutta. Clinging to the world has ended. What do you think? Um, let me start with Jane. Jane, how are you tonight? At this moment, I'm calm. And I, can thank, I can thank the Buddha for that. <laughs> and who else? Well, okay, that bald-headed guy. <laughs> no, well, okay, I'll take that. But who else, most importantly? Myself. Thank for my you, practice. So thank you. Thank you, Jane. Adam, how are you tonight? Can't hear you. Adam. I think you guys are muted. Hey, John. There you go. How are you tonight, my friend? 
I'm good at first. I was kind of falling asleep because I worked all day today. I've been painting. That's all right. I've been up since 5.30, but um, mm -hmm. your work was pretty good. Um, I, I, You always say I am what I am from Popeye. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm starting to look a little like him, too. I got to get a corn cob. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Character. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. You want me to call tonight, John? Yeah, give me a call a little bit later. Like, um, you know, actually make it like 1030. 1030, my time, 1030, your time, 1030. 1030, my time. Okay, no problem. All right. How's that smiley guy next to you? He's always smiling. That's my main <laughs> man right there. That's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> yeah. How are you, Jeff? I'm well, John. Thank you. Thank you for the tea. Excellent. It's a little silly, but my son and I, have decided we talk he lives uh 1500 miles we hardly ever see each other but we talk once a day and, nice. and unfortunately it's usually about the news and we've decided that we're going to form our own political party and it's, <laughs> it's called <laughs> the no opinion party <laughs> so so that when people bother us about what do you think of this or what do you think of that we can just say, eh, we have no real opinion about that. And he, he and I both have decided that's a good way to liberate ourselves from uh, attachment to those different it ideas. It really is. And the best way to keep yourself ideas. out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, so it is just that. If, if, if you folks are interested, the T-shirts will be out soon. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. I'm a teacher, Brian. How are you? I'm good, John. I I've got an issue though. I love zebras. I think we're gonna have to have a talk about that. <laughs> no, you're, uh, I'm, I'm I'm rescinding your uh, certification. You can't, you can't <laughs> love zebras in pet practice. Oh uh, wow, God. hateful, hateful, evil animals. Wow, that <laughs> sounds like that sounds like a deeply held view. I don't know how you feel about that. Um. Yeah, this was interesting how the, the Buddha went from dependent origination, which is the moment-by-moment moment creation of the ego, right? Yeah, the, that's it. The, yeah. the emptying of the ego and the, the aggregates then just being the aggregates. They're, they were, once you empty all of that out, there's there's nothing left to, to cling to. Yeah. Uh, and that was a really... I hadn't seen that quite put that way in another pseudo before. So that was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Now my teacher, Tom. Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I uh, really like this sutta. Um, I guess what, what is quite encouraging for me is that you have kind of multiple strikes I like yeah. multiple opportunities to sort of interrupt this this chain of events that will happen in your mind, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. in a um, um, ideally, you have right view from the very beginning, and none of these disturbances come up. But yeah. even if you, even if they do come up, you have the opportunity to see that cessation occur at different stages along that that sort of chain and and it you know i just had a and i think i think what's so self-encouraging about the dharma is that when we do the work we can actually notice it this is not just some you know um yes. you know it's it's I, and i i had something um i had a bit of a disagreement with a colleague um a few days ago and I noticed a bit of anger arising and then normally I, you know, so obviously if I'd shown a bit of right view at the very beginning, the anger wouldn't have even arisen, but it did arise. And I was able to notice it just as a feeling of anger, not as kind of like, why am I angry or why did she do this? Or why did I do that? But just notice it in a very sort of dispassionate way as a feeling like, like just notice it as that on a very sort of visceral level, this is what anger feels like. And and it went. And it's like, wow, this stuff really works. You know, I mean, sometimes yeah. I, I teach the stuff. Sometimes after, you know, it's um, 
it's it, 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 we need to constantly remind ourselves right this um of Ooh. how this stuff really works and that's what is most inspiring um despite obviously having many inspiring teachers um it's that personal experience of the cessation of suffering which is the most encouraging and inspiring thing so um anyway uh, thanks uh, thanks john thank you for sharing that 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 was very inspiring and encouraging and you're pointing out how dhamma practice becomes self-encouraging by noticing the benefits that you were able to reclaim your mind in that in a very quick moment and again it points right to what i said earlier that each moment holds a potential for further ignorance becoming further ignorant or to use this moment to incline my mind towards awakening it's surprising how often we, we, especially in the beginning of Dhamma practice, we tend to exclude certain things. Like we'll be, it's okay, we'll allow ourselves to be upset or grasping after a reverse to, to a certain basket of stuff in the world that we kind of exclude because, but then we'll bring practice to everything else. But it's mostly that everything else that is insignificant and things that are most significant in our minds and things that we're clinging to the most, we tend to not want to look at until we get to the point in our Dhamma practice where we can do what you're describing, that we've developed concentration well enough to do that. And to also understand what you said too, Tom, that you just went through the process. You didn't have to first judge yourself harshly for going through the process. You realized, yeah, this is why I'm practicing. You know, this is this is Dhamma practice. So thank you for that. And I'm gonna I'm gonna set up the cross pond no opinion party. I, I like it. <laughs> well, what are, can we call it the the wise restraint no opinion party? There you go. I want to call it the I am what I am party. And that's it's my party. I'll do what I want. <laughs> zebra, zebra party. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, how are you this evening? Good. Yes. The, you know, the wise restraint and the being a reference point to what's occurring. It, like you said earlier, John, it really is a dynamic kind of process. Um, I don't, I don't know if I want to say for the first time, because that sounds kind of uh, like an exaggeration, but sometimes, you know, after coming here and meditating, um, I have to admit, you know, it's hard sometimes in a group when I'm alone in the forest or whatever, yeah. or alone in my room, it just seems easier. I mean, I love, yes. it sounds wrong, but I, I mean, I love having the company of everyone. It's sound. really good training because for me, it's like, it can be overwhelming. I don't know if it's because I'm just not a social person or whatever, but like, that like distractions come up. So even being in yeah. this room or, you know, this is where I go for acupuncture. So it's like things coming up there, but it's such good training because for the first, it felt like one of the first times tonight, I was just able to, it was just, I really noticed the calm that occurred. Mm -hmm because I was just able to disassociate is kind of a strong word, but kind of just let go of all those things. And I'm like, oh, so this is what it is. Yeah. being a reference point to what's occurring. And there's a lot of different things going on all the time or sounds or zebras, zebras walking past. <laughs> yeah, our thoughts coming up. Uh, so it, it just, uh, the training is so, like like Tom said, it's exactly that. It's very self-encouraging. That was exactly what I felt. So, yeah. Thank you for that. And you're right to recognize it is difficult when you go out in the world. That's not, recognizing that is not anti-Dhamma. Right. The, the Buddha, I mean, think about this. The, 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 um, the manifestations of ignorance in the world are just the same as they were 2,600 years ago. In that way, we haven't learned or evolved at all. But during the Buddha's lifetime, things were a lot quieter. We didn't have social media. We didn't have we don't have fast cars. You know, he lived a much quieter life. But even in that life, he chose to leave the world behind. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a it used to be a suit that I taught off in its article called "Going Forth" and what it meant. It wasn't so much that we hate the world, so we're going to go live in the forest. It's the world is crazy. Uh, I don't want to be entangled in it. Mm -hmm. And so the Buddha did that when he was 29 years old. He spent six years wandering around, figuring things out. He came to this conclusion, and he spent the next 45 years of his life teaching this incredible Dhamma, mostly well, completely disentangled from the world and mostly physically disentangled. He spent most of his time 
in the original Sangha, not involved in the world. Yet, they went out to the world every day with an alms, with an alms bowl, got their food, picked up some rags to make robes out of, talked the Dhamma to a few people that were feeding them, and then they went back into the, into the forest. Mm -hmm. And that was the model for the original Sangha and how you could live in the world. Now, the Buddha also taught the worldly people, householders they were called, they still are today, but they all they awaken too, such as the person we just mentioned again, Anatha Pandika, mm -hmm. a wealthy benefactor who came across the Buddha, learned from him, awakened. And if it wasn't for Anatha Pandika and probably a few other people, we would not have these teachings left because he financed the Buddha's original Sangha. He's the one that built monasteries, the Anatha, you know, Anatha Pandika's monastery, oh, wow. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you're you're right to wealth to recognize it's much more difficult to go out in the world. But that's why we practice, not as a rejection of what's occurring in the world, but out of understanding. So you're living a, a householder life. Some of your life is spent out in the world, but you still have a practice that you can use to establish and maintain seclusion, meaning you can seclude your, seclude your mind from the goings on in the world through concentration. And then when you go out in the world, as, as um, Tom just described, things might arise, but you know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to not take it personal. This is not me. This is not mine. And it, I think it becomes easier and easier as we progress in the Dhamma. In other words, we realize pretty quickly when we're getting into an argument or a disagreement with something, through Dhamma practice, we say, wait a minute, my part in it is I want this person to be different than they are, so let me stop going here. And that was kind of the beginning of a lot of people's recognition of practice. It was the beginning of my recognition, I think. I loved arguing. And it took me, I just loved it. And it took me a long time to, to get, I, mean, I didn't care that your view could be so opposing to my view, or you could be arguing what I agree with, but I'm going to take an oppositional view just to argue. And I did that often. So, and I think a lot of people do that because it established me in somehow, somehow in the world. We don't do that. We go out in the world with a quiet, calm mind, mind and we see this, this arises, that arises. And this is not me. This is not me. In the beginning, it's just such an excellent class because we're all describing practicing the Dhamma and recognizing um, ignorance arising in this moment of fabrication arising. Yeah. It really was uh, excellent. Thank you. Laura. Thank you. Dhamma teacher on. John. Um, lately, I've been wondering uh, why exactly it is that the Buddha taught dependent origination so often. Hmm. Uh, but it's such a as Tom just said, it's such an excellent tool to to recognize how how your craving actually comes up. Yeah, you can see it right there. And, and uh, just like Tom, I, I, I like that, that intersection between contact and feelings. We're, and it's what Laura described too. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's almost the perfect one. Yeah. Where, and you immediately then see the, the previous steps as well where where uh name and form just pops up right away yeah you see it this is uh, I, I feel yeah of course yeah but it's my feeling yeah my name and form. So, uh, the, yeah the um the understanding of the of the connections both the connection of the, this is that is and the connection when this arises that arises and when this ceases, that ceases. Uh, those connections is, is in the end, uh, the practical Dharma practice. And as you were thinking, I was kept hearing those words we just read tonight, um, the uninstructed ordinary person. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between me and someone who's never practiced the Dharma? They're an ordinary, uninstructed person. I'm an ordinary instructed person. And that is the only defining difference. And it's not a meaningful difference out in the world, is it? Nobody I, yeah. nobody down when I walk down the street, nobody cares if I'm uninstructed or instructed. It doesn't come up. So it's important to understand we're ordinary people learning how to live an incredible life, what it means to be a human being. Everything else beyond that is inconsequential. It's inconsequential, especially to your awakening in this moment. And that's how we should see it. Just Again, there were such great descriptions of taking our practice off our cushion, coming in contact with the world, and realizing, wait a minute, 
This is Dharma practice. I don't have to lose my mind over it. I can keep myself liberated, disentangled from the world, just as the Buddha and the original Sangha members did. We're doing nothing different here. In fact, our practice resembles that as close as possible today with us being all householders. But we come together in this Sangha, in this forest, the wilderness, remember that suit a couple of weeks ago? We come together here. This is where we learn to practice the Dhamma. But there's no clinging here, is there? You don't even cling, you don't even cling to the great teacher or the other great teachers. Why? Because you understand it's your practice. We're just instructing you. And as you allow yourself to be instructed, you're no longer an uninstructed ordinary person. But you're still ordinary. I don't know. Yeah, and, and even those uh, in the original song, when where everybody was uh, uh, even their feelings came up. Yeah. Even their you know confrontations happened. There's a whole yeah. book about that about how to do how to deal with that in the sangha. Yeah. yeah. That my reference to the precepts and how they came about. Right. It's great stories. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> I just love, I just I love reading them because it just shows you how, how human they were. Yeah, there's a few. I should bring them in here, yeah. maybe teach I'm them every I'm now and then. I'm curious how to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you might have to self-identification with that one and this one. Uh, David Dada. Yeah, I want to drop a rock on the Buddha's head. <laughs> Get rid of the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. It's getting on. Um, thank you all for it. Oh, yeah. Wait a minute. I forgot. To... Wait a... No, 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 no. No, you got to say something now. Our practice allows us to shape our moment. Yeah. This moment. This moment. Yeah. To be shaped with wisdom or an instructed one or one who has more practice to do shaped by the ignorance yeah and we understand it and we end up being welcoming in that way mm -hmm. so you see these moments these flashes of the practice in place and maybe not towards fruition in what Tom described and what Laura described we all experience that's the promise of it. Yeah. So you know, what comes with it are those little air breaks. Uh, mindfulness and experience along the way while you you know keep practicing. Thank you. That was excellent. Glad I glad I made you talk. The promise of becoming is really what we're talking about. Become. What do I want to become? I think, I'll, I think I'll become a zebra. We'll end as we usually do. I just want to mention something. What is it, Laura? We we're going to do another river cleanup, and I'll put it in the newsletter. But when is the dates now? April fifteenth. Yeah. So we're, you know, I think we just try to put that aside if you can and join us for this river cleanup. We had such a great time last year doing a good thing, uh, being proud Buddhist. Brian and Tom. Adam and uh, Jeff have to come to Yeah, yeah, there's no exceptions to this, by the way. Everyone. I don't care how far away you are. You've got to help us clean the river. And, we'll, you know, we'll have breakfast and do, do the whole thing. But I'll, I'll send an email out on it. Huh? Oh, Jeff. But didn't Kevin and Rom go swimming? No. I thought they did. I thought they did, and they... Dev fell in. Dev fell in. Yeah, poor Dev. It was a shallow body. Yeah. We'll finish with meta as we always do. So just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and its body. And these are the Buddha's words on meta or his description of an awakened human being. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, 
the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Peace, Thank everyone. You, John. See you, John. Good night. Night, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so Bye. much, everybody. Thank you, Jeff. See you, Adam. See you, John. I'll call you tonight. Great. 10.30. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.